All right. Why don't you open the book of Habakkuk? He's right after uh, Nahum. And right before Zephaniah. The message is entitled, Sin Eclipses God. The world under its fallen state is in rebellion against God, as you know. And from the beginning of history, the constant corruption, cruelty, and evil of man against man has been recorded. Our present day is no exception as we are witnessing the indoctrination and the promotion of evil, unrighteousness of every sort, and condemning what is good, righteous, and true. It seems that the wicked are prevailing over the godly, that God is indifferent towards evil today. Therefore, the reality of the kingdom of God is being eclipsed in many different ways. You know, the sun, as big as it is, can be eclipsed by your little thumb if you put it close enough to your eye, right up to the sun there. Such is the case with the prophet Habakkuk. All he sees is the sin of Judah. Blinding his perspective of God. He's earthbound. Instead of heavenly perspective. Until he heard God in prayer. That changed everything as you go through the book. It's been said that praying men and women see clearer, farther, and able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. By the same token, prayerless men and women see unclear and only what is in front of them falling prey to the attacks. Of the enemy. It's called warfare. Ephesians 6.18. Prayer. The confusion of the prophet. Is expressed in prayer. In verse 1. The perception of the prophet. Is cleared up. By prayer. In chapter 2. So the confusion. In prayer. In chapter 1. The clearing up of that confusion. In chapter 2. And the revelation to the prophet is revealed through prayer in chapter 3. Everything happens in this book by prayer or the lack thereof. Now the prophet Habakkuk has two problems with God in chapter 1 that are expressed in the form of complaints. The first one is going to be our text in chapter 1. Verse 1 through 4, the inactivity of God regarding the evil of the people of Judah. The second one is the activity of God regarding using Babylon to punish Judah. In chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Two problems, two complaints in chapter 1. So let's look at the first problem of Habakkuk here as he complains to God about his inactivity against the evil of Judah. It's characterized by three things. Let me read here. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment 
proceeds. The first problem of Habakkuk here is he complains to God about the inactivity of against the sin of Judah is characterized by the following. First, we have the impatience of the prophet, verse 1 and 2. The impatience of the prophet. Second, you have the indictment of the prophet in verse 3. And thirdly, the indignation of the prophet in verse 4. The impatience of the prophet comes first, verse 1 and 2. Listen, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw comes first. Look at verse 1. The identity of the prophet is given to us. His name is Habakkuk. It means to embrace. In the indicative here of his need of embracing the faithfulness of God. Because at this point he's confused. He's earthbound. His perspective is from the earth's point of view instead of heavenly. His name is found two times in the book, in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 1. Some scholars believe his name to be an Akkadian word for garden plant. Um, Martin Luther said he was one who embraces his people and takes them into his arms to comfort and to lift them as one embraces a weeping child or person. He was a prophet to Judah. That's his audience. Israel had gone into captivity, the northern kingdom, as we've seen through the other minor prophets. We just finished Nahum. In 722, Assyria took the northern tribes. Babylon was um, a rising power, having obtained their independence from Assyria in 625 B.C. under Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon defeated Egypt in 605 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish and made her first siege on Jerusalem at 605-606 with two further ones in 596 and 586, which was the last um, siege to take Judah into Babylon for 70 years' captivity. Now, Nahum the, had prophesied, as we've seen, of the destruction of Nineveh by Babylon and it took place, as we noted, in 612 B.C. The next prophet, Zephaniah, declared God would make Nineveh desolate, showing it yet future. And Habakkuk was his contemporary and says nothing about Nineveh. If it is because Nineveh had been destroyed, then Habakkuk's prophecy would fall between 609 and 598, somewhere in there, during the reign of Jehoiakim. You see, Habakkuk is called a prophet, a spokesman for God, one who speaks in the place of God. He's a prophet, one who was the mouthpiece of God to the people of God. The title of Prophet in the superscription is only found in two other minor prophets, Haggai 1.1 and Zechariah 1.1. He's the third and the only three. Now, the prophet Habakkuk was revealing the burden of God. Notice in verse 1 here, and the word burden, as we've noted often, is a Hebrew word that means a load carried or borne. 
an oracle from God, literally here, not his own, associated usually with judgment. The word is used also for the duties carried out by the Levites and the burden that was forbidden to be carried on to be sold on the Sabbath day in Numbers 4.15 and Nehemiah 13.19. So the context will distinguish the normal carrying of some things or forbidding to the burden that is a spiritual revelation of judgment unto the people of God. Now, the burden of Habakkuk was a vision, as it says here. He received from the Lord, indicated by the word saw. And the book of Habakkuk uh, is slightly different from the usual prophetic message in that it consists of a dialogue between the prophet and God to resolve the problem he has with God, followed by the revelation of God about the salvation of Israel. You see, Habakkuk did not speak for God to the people, if you look to the three chapters. Habakkuk spoke to God about the people. A little different. Now, Habakkuk is one of the six minor prophets who doesn't date his prophecy in the opening of the book. The others are Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Nahum, and Malachi. Now, the origin of the prophet is not given to us. He gives us no genealogy or family background in his book. There is rabbinical tradition that makes him the son of the Shunammite woman who Elisha restored to life in 2 Kings 4.16, but it's merely tradition, not biblical um, revelation. Another one says that he was of the tribe of Levi due to a reference to him in the apocryphal writings that were written between the Old and the New Testament, those 14 books. But there is evidence in chapter 3, verse 1 and 19 that is used to confirm this, but it has the association of musical instruments associated with this prayer there in chapter 3, verse 1 and 9, which has a good, great merit because it's internal evidence. The prayer is a liturgical psalm as you read the third chapter, a hymn on Shiganoth, meaning it's uncertain um, of, of its origin, but at the same time it, it identifies the musical accompaniment of this psalm or song, and it could very well be that it's associated with the temple chorus, and perhaps he was affiliated with the priesthood. It's at least some internal evidence in chapter 3 there. As you know, the psalms and hymns were directed to the chief musician um, many times in the psalms with musical accompaniment, and Asaph was the head overseer in the psalms, and, and as David set up the different courses of the priest and all. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah were prophets of the priestly line, and perhaps maybe because of chapter 3, Habakkuk, possibly, but we cannot be certain, was one. Yet the mo most of the prophets, as you know, were not of the priestly line simply because prophets were called out by God to warn the people of God because even the priesthood had become corrupted in itself. And the prophets were calling back the, the leaders, the priests, and the people back to God.
Now notice in verse 2, the indicated problem of the prophet. Habakkuk accused God of not listening to his prayers. <laughs> now I know you would never do that, so we'll just, we'll just center on Habakkuk, okay? Um, he addressed, his address to God is by his covenant name, O Lord, Yahweh. This is the name that God gave for himself to Moses in Exodus 3.15. It says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God, Yahweh, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The tetragrammaton, only the YHVH or WH, we don't know because there's no vowels in them, so we don't know how it's pronounced. So that's why you have the yields and the tittles to, to know how to pronounce it. Now, his impatience is marked by the phrase, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. The implication is that Habakkuk has been praying and seeking God for a long time. The word cry means to cry out aloud with an idea of helping. Maybe you've been there once in a while. The consternation of Habakkuk is that God has not been listening to Habakkuk. Listen, listen to his words. And you will not hear me? Question mark. And you will not hear me? <laughs> wow. The question is rhetorical. But I believe also sarcastic and disrespectful. At times we can be so bound by what's going on that we can say some pretty silly things to God. Do you think God says, ah, I didn't know he was that bad? Do you think God is shocked? Hmm. The word here in this phrase means to hear attentive with the idea of granting his request. As if God owed something to Habakkuk. Kind of like your son coming to you. You know, and I've asked you, I've asked you how many times? Hmm? You don't look at your son, oh, bless you, my boy. And I will run through your mind. Habakkuk accused God of not delivering the righteous. Still in verse 2, he presents his complaint in arrogance. Even cry out to you. Now the phrase cry out is different from the previous one. It means to call out in sudden alarm as an intercessor with the emphasis on you, Yahweh. This cry was to the one who could and can do something about the evil taking place, but he's doing nothing. Been there? Hmm. He expresses prayer and consternation, crying out, violence, and you will not save. The violence means the unscrupulous Infringement on people's rights, wrongdoing, and brutality. 
The implication being that Habakkuk is more bothered by the violence than God. Do you hear this man's voice? Do you follow his words? The accusation is that God is not doing what he should be doing by the statement, and you will not save, deliver, avenge, and preserve the righteous. Wow. Pretty heavy charge against God. You see, the complaint of the prophet is God's seeming indifference and inactivity regarding evil as the wicked prevail over the righteous. Each of us, uh, when we were children, can remember being impatient with our parents about certain things we felt were wrong or unjust. And we were persuaded that our words fell on deaf ears, yet they were fully aware of the wrong or evil. And in their wisdom at the right time, they acted to correct that wrong. It's the wisdom, it's the time, and it's the advantage that someone of more experience in life has. Certainly God has been around for quite a long time, forever. This kind of impatient despair is nothing new for believers because we live in a fallen sinful world, ladies and gentlemen. It's not doesn't take a very wise person to understand that. Psalm thirteen two says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? So this is we see this. Throughout the scriptures. Here's the problem. I'm living in this world and some bad things happen. Sometimes to others, sometimes to me. And, and it seems like God is doing nothing at all. Psalm 74 10 says, Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? 74 10. I'm sorry, the same thing there. I doubled it. Even to the point of um, the great tribulation in Revelation 6.10. He says, the martyrs under the fifth field say, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The earth is full of sin, violence, and evil. That is not to say that there are not good things happening. That doesn't mean that there isn't progression and advancement and technology and we live better and all that. Those things are fine, but the evil also progresses using the technology and the progress of things. Think of the internet. It's a great tool. But man, how it's used for evil. It's incredible. God tells us what hinders prayer to be answered. First is the presence of sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened 
that he cannot save, nor is ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated me from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Listen to the words of Jesus in Psalm 22, two. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why? He was sin. God could not hear his own son because he became literal sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I write to you that you do not make a practice of sin, but when you stumble and fall, you have an advocate for the defense. Jesus Christ the righteous, a lawyer for your defense. So you go to him, you acknowledge your sin, you confess your sin, you abandon your sin, you're in fellowship again. Sin hinders. It's like you on your cell phone and you go through a hole and you drop that call. That's what happens when sin comes into my life between my communication with God. He drops me. Wow. There's also the presence of silence. James 4.2 says you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes we just don't ask. Jesus says, in that day you shall ask me nothing. Ask my father, please, please, please ask. <laughs> the presence of unforgiveness. Mark eleven twenty five to 26. And whoever, whenever you stand, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive you trespasses. That's pretty heavy. He's talking to believers. Not to non-believers, to believers. So my forgiveness is based on my forgiveness of others. Once I'm a Christian, on one aspect, one part of it. There's also the presence of unbelief in James 1, 6-8. It says, but let him ask in faith and no doubting. For he who doubts is like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We all have these moments, but it shouldn't be the habit of life. There's always the difficult times or the times when we falter, but the, the habit of life should be the consistency as we grow, as we develop and we mature in Christ. And God allows evil to run its course in this world, as you know, while at the same time he is working behind the scenes to punish the evil and deliver the righteous. We just don't see it. But it's all over the scriptures. Habakkuk understood this, but he was so caught up by the sin that he, he was blinded by his own sight. We have um, the seeming inactivity of God with evil in the days of Noah for 120 years. But he was not indifferent to it. He was not inactive, evident that he brought the judgment. And only eight people were saved. Genesis 5 on down to chapter 7 and 8. We have the seeming inactivity of God for about 210 years with the idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel. But he brought judgment by Assyria, the rod of his anger, according to Isaiah 10.5. We have the seeming inactivity of God over the evil of Haman. To destroy all the Jews in the book of Esther. But God used Esther to deliver 
them and Haman ended up getting hung in his own gallows. By the way, it's the only book that doesn't have the name of God mentioned and is the only book that was not found in the Qumran caves. Interesting. You see, the impatience of the prophet was due to being short-sighted. He's earthbound. He has an earthly perspective rather than a heavenly perspective. Notice, secondly, in verse 3, the indictment of the prophet. The particulars, as we'll see, are grouped in pairs here. The prophet charged God for making him see the general decadence of Judah. I mean, he has it bad. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? The expression why is the interrogative asking the reason or answer to something. Usually it is to be instructed or informed regarding the question, and such is the case in our text here. But the context of our text is the expression of complaint against God. Actually blaming God. Charging God with being at fault and unjust and allowing Habakkuk to perceive the iniquity and the trouble. You see, he was indirectly saying that he was more sensitive than God. He's already said he's more concerned than God. <laughs> now he's more sensitive than God. Wow. The first two words describe the general overall decadence of Judah at the present time, and they are complementary. The word iniquity means unjust wickedness and evil. Troubles means what is wrong. The pair of words are used for perverted justice and oppression of individuals in the book of Job 15.35 and Psalm 7.14 and other places. When these things are the usual in society, it's not good. It's unhealthy, it's unproductive, it's unsafe. Notice the prophet follows up with the particulars of the general decadence of Judah. He was seen. The plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. The second pair of words describes a specific unjust oppression of the weaker and more vulnerable members of society here. Destruction, robbery, and devastation was being committed against people by the word plundering. The word violence is the same word as in verse 2, the unscrupulous infringement on a person's right, wrongdoing, and brutality. So you've got this whole aspect of everything breaking down. People acting in an uncivil way. And as we're going to see, there are no consequences. So none of this is stopped or uh, confronted. 
The two words again are complementary, revealing the evil deeds. The prophet Habakkuk expressed his lamentable agony, seeing the atrocities with his very own eyes. He says, are before me. He was witnessing for himself the low moral and ethical standard of his own people. That's always a heartache. Even as a parent would see the wrong choices of his son or daughter to forget everything they've been taught in the Lord and to move away into a life of depravity, it crushes you. He was witnessing the heinous crimes committed by his own people against their own. He was witnessing the fear, despair, and suffering of the weak that were preyed on. The prophet Habakkuk declared the violent attitude of the people of Judah in the last two. Listen, the word is strife. It means controversy and dispute. So this has to do with the attitude, the very spirit of the people. This is the, the atmosphere. The word contention means to evoke the anger and dissension born of conflicting and uncompromising wills. It's just headbutting. There's no civility. There's no uh, ability to talk, to speak, to reason, to clear up. It's very, very hostile. The Proverbs are full of these warnings. Remember, Jeremiah fits in this period. Jeremiah has been warning. The book of Jeremiah would be a good compliment at this time, particularly towards the end of his ministry, right before the devastation and all that was going on. Remember one time God, uh, Jeremiah, went around looking for a righteous man and God said, there's none. He went around and he didn't find him. <laughs> didn't find him. Whenever... Um, we are in the midst of difficulties and difficult circumstances and situations. We're more prone to charge God with being unfair and unjust towards us. Listen to Jacob, Genesis forty-two thirty-six. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Now you know the context. They lied about Joseph. There's famine in the land. They're going to starve. Joseph in Egypt is calling for the youngest son. Everything is crushing down upon Jacob. But you also know the end of the story, right? <laughs> So these dark times, these times of, 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 of misunderstanding will come into our lives, but it's always because we get our eyes off the Lord and we get so caught up in the sin or the circumstance or the uh, things that are going on. And so we have to have our eyes on the Lord. That's why we need one another to encourage one another, to remind one another, to stay in the Word of God. Let me ask you a simple question. When's the last time you read your Bible? 
If it wasn't yesterday or this morning, you're in trouble. You know how many people go to church that don't read their, their Bible in a week, two weeks? And they've been Christian for 10, 15, 20 years. Remember, all the kings fell in their old age. Not when they were young. We must be careful. There will be times when God will um, allow certain things to come into our lives for different reasons. Sometimes to test our love for him. We saw that with Abraham. Take your son, your only son. Offer him. Right? To tune our ear to his voice. To train us. To have us to do his will, absolutely. That we don't go the wrong way. Ultimately, is to make us more like him. Not like us. Therefore, Paul calls out to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service uh, to prove what is that good, acceptable, the perfect will of God. But he says, don't be fashioned this world system, but be transformed, metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. To prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so it's an ongoing relationship from the word and prayer, obedience, walking with him, keeping our eyes on him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his right, and then all these things shall be added unto you. Now, I don't know where we get this false idea of Christianity. Certainly, reading the New Testament, I can never come up with the conclusion that they had no troubles. I cannot conclude that there was no persecution. I cannot conclude that they were hated. In fact, if I read it, I, 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 I affirm that in the positive. That is what was going on. Book of Hebrews speaks of the hall of faith in chapter 11. And the world's attitude against the believer. The time that God has called each of us to live out our faith, ladies and gentlemen, today is much like the days of Habakkuk. God is allowing us to see the iniquity and trouble, not only for of our nation, but the world as it's moving to be united under a one world governing body and alliance. It wasn't that clear when President Bush Sr. declared the One World Alliance that was announced on every flight you took back when he was president. Now it's progressed much aggressive and much direct to bind and to limit and to pressure people to that One World Alliance. God is allowing us to see the plundering and the violence every day as society is becoming more lawless, moving towards anarchy. In fact, it started in many parts of the world, and it's moving strongly through our own nation. God is allowing us to see the strife and contention of evil and angry attitudes that are very opposed to the Judeo-Christian ethic and moral standard. And particularly if you are 
so dogmatic about only the name of Jesus being the way to heaven and the forgiveness of sins and salvation. But we're not to fear man. We're to fear God. Luke 12, 5 says, But I will show you whom you shall fear. Fear him who after has killed. He has killed. Has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He has power and authority to cast body and soul. Even into Gehenna. So, the indictment of the prophet was due to being brokenhearted. And when we're brokenhearted, we give in to our emotions and how we feel and what we're being bound by our sight. Notice thirdly comes the indignation of the prophet in verse 4. The prophet expressed his frustration over the ineptness of the law. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. The disintegrating condition of society was marked by the fact that the law to rule the people of Judah had become void of authority. Therefore, the law is powerless. This was the concluding observation by the word, therefore. Iniquity and trouble is the national character. Iniquity uh, uh, just devastates and trouble devastates people. Plunder and violence are everywhere. Strife and contention is the heart of every person. For the most part. And when you have a small section of society that is unruly, then it can be controlled. There's authority. But when the, it flips around and becomes the opposite, it becomes very scary. The law was the standard God had given to Israel to live by, to please God, and to benefit his people. Look at your own life, how much better you have lived as a single person or as a married person since you've come to Christ. The choices you make, the evaluations you're able to make, what you do, how you think, how you speak, who you affiliate with, how you look at the world, your compassion for others, your understanding that they're blind, dead, and trapped in sins, and unless the gospel gets to them, they will perish if they give their last breath. We are 100% ahead. We live so good. The ceremonial law and ritual law provided the people the method and the manner by which to approach God to atone for their sins and be in fellowship with God. All these things God gave to be right with God, the vertical axis and on the horizontal plane. But the vertical is the one that is the cost of the horizontal plane. If I'm not right with God, my horizontal plane, my relationship with my wife, my children, whatever, it's, it's, I, I can fake it, I can whatever, but it's not there. 
The law was given on Mount Sinai, as you know, in the land of Media, where Moses fled from Pharaoh, from Egypt in Exodus 2.15. Paul confirms Mount Sinai, Sinai to be in Arabia in Galatians 4.25, not in the Sinai Peninsula. So you're looking at me this way. Here is the um, Sinai Peninsula right here. Media is over here. It's on the other side of Jordan, down here. Arabia. So turn to the back of your Bible and where it shows you Mount Sinai and the peninsula, put a circle and a slash. Wrong. It's over in Media. That's where it's at. Every Bible's wrong. The commentary is in Galatians 4.25. Simple. Now Habakkuk declared the law was powerless. It means feeble or weak. In other words, the law, as God had given it, was ineffective and useless, having been ignored and corrupted. You see, if, if you buy a product from the store, they guarantee that if you use that product, you don't tamper with that product, they will stand behind their product. It will work effectively and efficient. But if you go home and you change that product or you open it up, you have just voided the guarantee. The same thing with the Word of God. People start ignoring, messing it, mixing it, doing whatever. God doesn't honor it. God doesn't stand behind it. Or just even if you ignore it and you don't teach it or obey it, God has no responsibility towards it at all. The consequences was that just judgments did not exist. Injustice never goes forth. Here's the consequence. The word justice, mishpat, means the act of deciding a case in a righteous way. Be it in the process or procedures of litigation. Be it in the decision or sentence of the judgment. It encompasses all aspects of it. The commentary on justice is that it never was brought forth. He's not exaggerating. He's not embellishing. He's declaring the reality of it. The word never means justice was continually corrupted and obstructed. The custom and continual practice was unrighteous judgments in justice. We have seen much of the decay of our own tribunal system in many different ways. And yet at first when it began to be evident, and when there was, um, even back as far as the late 60s, well certainly in the 60s it would have been outrageous, but even moving on in the 70s when there was a bad judgment by a judge, you know, it was very rare and people would really, well, I can't believe. But as we've moved on from there, it's become more prevalent, more prevalent, more extreme, more completely inequitable. I mean, there's no justice at all that people just ignore it or just, man, eh, what the heck. It doesn't bother society anymore. Notice the prophet expressed his irritation over the corruption of the judgment. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. 
The reason for this unjust condition by the residing judges is given for the wicked surround the righteous. The ungodly evil people were greater in number. Wicked were the ones guilty of the crimes and injustice. There were These were said to be um, around or to surround them, which simply means to encircle or to be in control. It's the golden rule. Whoever has the gold rules. The idea being to intimidate and impose their evil rule and authority. We see this very clearly in our society today. Where evil is imposed upon people. Immorality to those who can distinguish between moral and immoral and their objection. The progressive liberal and atheist and whatever else wants to impose their sinful lifestyle on moral people by intimidation and pressure. Simple. The righteous were the godly. They were fewer in number. Righteous simply means the lawful, the just in character. The one suffering at the hand of the wicked against the good that wants to be brought forth. First Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So while we may be advancing in technology and this and that, whatever. And it may help us to enjoy life a little better. But the evil of man progresses forward also, but in a downward slope. The consequence of such unjust condition is the rule of evil. Listen. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. The repeated practice is described by the word perverse. It means to bend or to twist. The idea behind it is to distort or to make crooked that which is straight, right, or upright. And we certainly see in our society the diligence, the ongoing strong effort to corrupt and twist to call good evil and evil good as Isaiah tells us the judgment that are declared notice are to be true and just the people are treated unfairly oppressed and crushed the law given by God is dishonored by the people of God being so far removed from God. This is the context of the people of Judah. We're not talking about the world people. And we see it also in the church today. There's another church that's parallel to the true church of Jesus Christ. A liberal church within the church. A progressive church. It's called the emergent church. And it's distorting the word of God. Making it more earthbound. More palatable. He declares the consequences is that the law is powerless. Justice has never carried out. The wicked outnumber 
the righteous, consequently, twisted judgment goes forth. Read the Proverbs, full of such warnings and precautions for the man and woman of God. You know, Jesus taught a parable in um, Luke 18, 1 through 8, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart regarding the justice of God and avenging the righteous. But the problem, the, the, the key thing to that parable in 18 of Luke is that the context goes back to chapter 17, verse 20 through 37, the coming kingdom and the evil prevailing prior to its coming. Will, man, will, 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 will there be faith upon the earth when the Son of Man returns? Will there be enough people on the earth believe that God's really going to avenge all the evil? You see, people get caught up with the evil and they realize, well, you know, God's not doing anything. Oh, no, 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 no. Please don't ever believe that. God is very aware of everything and He will avenge the righteous. He is acting. I believe God is acting in judgment against America with all my heart. With all my heart. I think we've crossed that line. I've been in ministry 40 years this September. I've been alive. I've seen, I've noted the downward progression now at lightning speed the last 40 years. We in our present day see the violence throughout our nation in the homes of individuals. The violence against children, abduction of children, missing people daily throughout the United States, let alone the world. Sex trafficking is big money. The violence on road rage and the freeways. People get shot. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. We have the breakdown of our judicial system, as I implied. They have decriminalized the law rather than maintaining it as a high standard for the sake of the um, overcrowdedness of the courts and prisons. And so they lower the standard and they let prisoners out and they endanger society. Judges give light sentences to evil criminals. Probation when there's a rape. Five years when someone kills somebody. Amazing. The consequences have been removed. So the authority of the law has been destroyed. The character of police officers has been slandered and marred by our own precedent. And have been made to be the bad guys. So now there's greater hatred and hardness towards officials of the law. We see the overruling of those who want to bring good. The overrunning of our country by illegal aliens because our politicians and president don't want to and refuse to execute our laws of immigration. They're there. They just ignore them. 
Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set on them to do evil. Here it is. When you have no consequences, you've just destroyed authority. You've just opened the door to craziness. The murder rate in our nation is incredible. Starting with the most heinous, the murder of 57 million innocent babies in abortion since 1973. By their own mothers. Not by our enemies. By their own mothers. The city of Chicago is a war zone. And yet guns are not allowed. But the bad guys are always going to have the guns. <laughs> It only leaves the innocent defenseless. By the way, 80-90% of that is black on black, not white on black. Interesting. But see, everything is confused, everything is distorted, everything is pitted. We have reached the epitome of ignorance by our politically correct language and reasoning. It is unfair for people to have more money than others, so we must take from you and distribute the wealth. There are no winners or losers. We've been taught for 30, 40 years with kids, baseball, and football. Everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a trophy to do away with excellence and competition. Wow. Now they're even considering not uh, allowing excellent students to be acknowledged with their excellent grades and, yeah, and what they've done because they might make the other students feel bad. How do you get to the state of super stupid as a nation? One step at a time. Wow. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, I looked upon the wicked, I was envious at them. Their cows don't have miscarriage, their children are healthy, they have everything their eyes can desire. He said, I've cleansed my hands before you in vain. But then he came to verse 17, he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. 18 says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Now he's not earthbound. Now he's heavenly bound perspective. And in verse 21 to 24, it says, thus my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. His conclusions were wrong because his eyes were on the wrong place. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, receive me the glory. God's on the throne, ladies and gentlemen. He's not inactive. He's not indifferent. If he showed you and I what he's doing, we would be more shocked than Habakkuk. Say what? 
Wow. The indignation of the prophet was due to the law being slighted. And so this is the first problem of Habakkuk as he complains to God about the inactivity with the evil of Judah. Characterized by the impatience of the prophet that was due to being short-sighted. The indictment of the prophet was due to being broken-hearted. And the indignation of the prophet was due to being and recognizing the law was slighted. He's a frustrated man. <laughs> because he didn't have his eyes on the Lord. He had him upon the earth. Man and sin. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this prophet, Lord. You are even glorified in man's wrath. Lord, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you or someone over the internet, you would speak to their hearts, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you don't know him, right where you sit, you can accept him. If you believe that he's God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can call upon him and be saved. This is your prayer to him. If you do that, we want to give you a Bible absolutely free afterwards. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name.